It's good to have you here, and it's always uh, a little bit of a work for us to change back into the schedule of three services, but we're glad that you're here. And we're starting a new uh, series this weekend that we're calling Gospel Conversations, and, um, and there's a lot behind this series. And my, my goal this morning is just to kind of get us set up. Now, we're, it's just a four-week series, and then uh, we're going to be heading into the book of James, but um, I... I we have a lot to say in a short amount of time to say it. And I really wanted to kind of get, get you understanding this uh, weekend why we're doing this. So I really have to take you back uh, really a year and a half. A year and a half ago. So I've been here now um, 24 years. <laughs> and um, so a couple, like a year and a half ago, we knew that we were going to need to be uh, hiring a, a new full-time worship pastor. And that was probably going to require just a lot of looking, probably a national kind of thing. And so I was just getting that process going. And, and in the middle of all that, kind of thinking about who are we going to hire and, you know, where are they going to be from and what are, we, what are we looking for and all that, it really got me to thinking just a lot about the future of Gateway and, and, and my future and how long we intersect together and all that kind of, which only God knows, but it just was made me thinking, you know, what, what should I be doing to, to set up the church for the future to be good and healthy and strong? And one of the things that really, I really began to think a lot about was, you know, being somewhere as long as I've been here, um, there are... There are hopefully some benefits to that. Uh, it brings some stability to a church. And I think there are some things as a church that, that we do well. And there are some things our, our staff does well as a whole. And hopefully some things I do well. But I also was thinking a lot a year and a half ago about the fact that I know there's probably some things that I don't do well. And um, because of that, the staff probably doesn't do well. And because of that, probably as a church, we don't do well. And I, I started to think a lot about, like, like, what is that? Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that most of of us, we are not very good at self-evaluation. So like right now, you could probably turn to the person next to you if you know them, if you live with them, and you could probably evaluate them in, you know, 30 seconds or 30 minutes. You could, you probably know a lot about them. You could do that. But to evaluate yourself is always difficult because we're, we're, we're just, it's hard for us to see our weaknesses really well and to know how to deal with them. And, and so I started thinking a lot about that. And I did what I typically do in situations like that. I found a couple of books and I started reading them. And like is often the case, I found about halfway through they weren't helping me at all. And uh, so I began to pray and just think, you know what, what I do? Well, what happened was I, I read a book that talked about a website that, that pointed to a person that pointed me to another person. And eventually one day, um, somebody through a big long process had said, you should talk to so-and-so because this is what they do. They, they kind of go into churches. It's kind of a third party. They don't go to your church. They go in kind of a fresh eye and they can kind of evaluate what you're doing and tell you what your weaknesses are. And I remember one day I was running down the dike. I remember this and I was thinking about it and I wanted to call them, but it feels a little threatening, right? Like, have you ever just thought, I should just walk up to somebody who knows me well and say, tell me what I'm not good at. That's usually a threatening thing to do. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but I finally remember about halfway through my run going, I'm just doing it. So I called this guy and we started having this conversation. I said, I've been going to this church for a lot of years and you know, all this, and we're looking for some outside help because I want to do, I want us to be a better church. And so we talked and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll look at your website, I'll listen to some sermons and I'll call you back in a week. Week later, I'm out running on the dike again, the phone rings, pick it up, start talking to him. And he says, so just a couple observations about your church. One, two, three. And 
every one of them, he just nailed, like just boom. Now, I remember when he told me, he was like, here's three observations about your church. I remember I was running, I stopped and I thought, and I'm like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I didn't say that in my mind. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Talk to you later. Got off the phone, went running. By the time I was done with my run, I realized he had just nailed three things that I could not see. I couldn't see it in myself and I wasn't seeing it in the church, but he was right. And so anyways, I went back and we had some conversations and all this resulted in um, him and his team, their ministry, uh, they ended up taking some time listening to sermons, uh, looking at our website, looking at our literature. Um, They called, they interviewed some of the staff, they even called some people in the congregation. And then one of the representatives came and back in January we met with him for two days up in the conference room with the staff and some lay leaders and some deacons. And by the end of two days we had like these big white pieces of, you know, sheets of paper, all all the walls, all the whiteboards were covered. And basically all we did for two days is we talked about like, you know, what is the church's history and where do we come from and what were our distinctive and what do we believe and, and, and what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? And when we, when we came out of those couple of days, uh, I would say we weren't really surprised at what we discovered, but it was very helpful. Two really huge things, uh, values that we walked out with. Um, one was more than ever, we were convinced that we need to be a church that excels with small groups, with grow groups. We just, we all feel like this is such an important component of what we are as a church because our big concern is that you could come on a weekend and you can hear the word of God preached and we can go through book after book after book and we can have great worship and all that kind of stuff and you can just leave and never follow up on anything and never have the encouragement and the prayer and the people that you need. So we walked out of those two days going, we have got to figure out a better way to do grow groups to make them better and stronger than they ever have been before. And that meant we needed to stop talking about it and we need to start doing something. So one of the first things we did is we sat down, we looked at job descriptions and we said we're changing this and this and this so that grow groups have a full-time person on staff who's investing in them. That person is Pastor Bill. We had to make a lot of changes to his job and to other jobs. And if you're a grow group leader, you know what I'm talking about. Pastor Bill has taken grow group, uh, the ministry ahead of an entire kind of a generation, if you will, and there's a lot more coming in what he's doing. That was the first thing. The second thing was not a surprise to us, but we came out again with a lot of conviction that, um, you know, I love what happens in here and the teaching that happens in, in other places in the church, but uh, God has given us a very clear mandate. And that mandate is that we need to take the gospel to every corner of our community and every opportunity he gives to take it to the world and we need to do better. We need to be more committed to that than we ever have been. And we kind of walked out with that commitment like, yes, we believe that we could do more, but we believe that we should do more. That because of what God has done for us, we must do more for our community. And we need to stop talking about it so much and we need to start doing it. And so that was kind of the second thing that, that we came out. Now, you know, I don't... I don't know what you think when you think about the evangelism and the church, and a lot of people don't even want to talk about it. Uh, it makes them uncomfortable. But uh, there was a study that came out two weeks ago that was, was very timely. And in the study of Protestant and evangelical churches across the United States, they, are, uh, they had a whole bunch of things, but four things really stuck out to me in this study. One was this, and none of this is rocket science, but the first one was this, that, that growing churches are growing mostly 
by transfer growth. So most churches in the U.S. right now are not growing, but the churches that are, are mostly growing by stealing sheep. That's what we call it. Uh, people are moving from one church to another church. Oh, you have a better program? We'll go to your church. Oh, your pastor has hair? We'll go to your church. You know, that kind of stuff. Like we're, we're moving around. And so it's not really growth through, through conversion, but growth through just transfer. Now, granted, people move and, you know, we go to different churches and that's great. Here's the second thing. 93 to 94% of churches today, they said, are not intentional in, in evangelism. What that means is they're not teaching it. The church doesn't have a strategy for it. They're not aggressively encouraging people. There's no accountability for sharing their faith. There's no money being spent. There's, there's no budget for it. The third thing is this, churches that are not intentional about evangelism, which are 93 to 94% of churches, what they said is that churches that are not intentionally uh, about evangelism are becoming less so, and they're becoming more about themselves. They're becoming more self-absorbed and more self-centered as time goes by. More of their money is for them, more of their programs are about them, more of what they do is just about, just about us. Let's just talk about what we want to do, making less sacrifices, less concern, less prayer for people who don't know Christ. More self-absorbed. And the fourth thing was this, and, and again, this is not rocket science, it's kind of a duh statement, but they said this, churches that are intentional about evangelism are the churches that are growing through conversions, okay, which just makes sense. But, but here's the thing, when I, when I walk out, when, when I looked at that study, this is the conclusion I came to, the big takeaway. Great commission churches or evangelistic churches apparently happen intentionally, not by accident, and I don't know about you, but that made me a little uncomfortable because there's a part of me that thinks evangelism shouldn't be a program. It should just be natural. Evangelism should just be something God does. It shouldn't be something we have to preach about and talk about and have accountability about. I don't, but again, when you go back to the Bible and you read it, the Bible talks a lot about it and it talks about it in strong terms and God's given us orders and, and, and great commissions and all of that. Why? Because God knows that our tendency over time is to become more and more and more self-absorbed and less concerned about other people. And so God wants to make this clear to us. Now, at the end of our two days together as a staff uh, with this person who came in from outside, we, we had developed a couple of statements. One was uh, a five, we came up with some five-year goals which are, are pretty cool and pretty big. Uh, we're going to talk about those in a few weeks. Today, I want to talk about our, our one year. So we came up with a one-year goal that basically starts this weekend. And we came up with one-year goals because we want there to be some accountability, at least for us as a staff, about where we're going and what we're doing. And we want this to be very clear uh, to you as a congregation. So our one-year goal is nothing huge, but it's just something to get the ball rolling to get to our five-year goals, which helps us get to what I'm thinking about with our 10-year goals. But let me give you our one-year goal because this is what we're going to talk about today. It has two parts. It begins this way. In the next year, which begins this weekend, we will determine to open our hearts and our living rooms, so we've got the grow group component going there, until Gateway has more than 500 people connected. Now, we have a lot more than 500 people in our church, but we would like to get up to 500 people regularly attending grow groups. So that's kind of a big thing because right now, we don't have enough room in our grow groups to accommodate that many people. So that means we're also going to add to our 30 groups another 12 groups over the next 12 months. So we want to add a new group about every month, and that's a big undertaking um, for people to get people trained. And, but we're, again, well on our way to meeting that goal. Now, what are we going to do? Well, that takes us to the second part. In these groups, we will equip and encourage members how to have gospel conversations. So 
let me just break that down a little bit. That's not all we're going to do in our grow groups. So in our grow groups, we, we, many of our groups pray and we're going to keep praying. And many of our groups have a Bible study and we're going to keep doing that. And some discuss the sermon and we're going to do that. If you're my grow group, we eat a lot and we're going to keep doing that. We're not going to stop doing that. But we're also going to make sure that we do this, that we're going to encourage one another when it comes to having gospel conversations. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explain that. You know, again, what is the gospel? What is that? And how do we explain that to other people? But for today, I could just say it's talking about Jesus, if you will, and being biblical about that with people who are far from God. So not people in this room, but people who don't know Jesus. And this will result in every member of Gateway having one more gospel conversation, and that's within the context of the year. Now, that may not seem like a big thing, right? So we're all going to have one more gospel conversation than we, would, than we would typically have. What that means is if, if you typically have 50 gospel conversations in a year, we're praying you have 51. If you have 10, we're open for 11. If you have five, we're open you have six. But if you have none, we're praying you have one. Now let me tell you why that's kind of a, a, a big deal. Because what I find in Scripture again and again and again is this. The people who receive the gospel share the gospel. Now, over the last couple of weeks, that statement has gone through, I can't tell you how many iterations. At one point it read, people who receive the gospel should share the gospel, or might share the gospel, or one day will share the gospel, or when they feel guilty enough, because there's a whole series about it, they'll start sharing the gospel, or whatever it is. And finally, I took all of those things out, and I just put this, because as I read the Bible, that's basically what it says. That's the way, that's like the normative way a Christian works. You receive the grace of God. Who in the world would keep that to themselves? It's the greatest need people have. You share it. Unfortunately, the real world doesn't seem to reflect that. Over the last 30 years, studies continue to say that 90% of people who attend evangelical and Protestant churches, 90% never share the gospel even once in any given year with someone who doesn't know Jesus. 90%. Think about that. That means 10% of Christians are doing 100% of the evangelistic work. Here's Here's where our statement, which doesn't seem like a big idea, is actually huge to us. We want to be a different kind of church. We don't want 10% of our congregation doing all the work. We want 100%. We want every single person in our church sharing their faith. Now, here's what that means on a practical level. If we are an average church, which I hope we're not, but if we're an average church, that means 90% of you have not shared the gospel in the last year with someone who doesn't know Christ. What this means is that for us, that's the big win. That means in the next year, 90% of our congregation are going to do something they haven't done in a long time. And 100% of us are going to have at least one gospel conversation. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a big goal. What, just one? But here's why we think it's big. Because that means that in the next 12 months, every single one of us will have lived out this command that God has given us. And while one may not seem like a lot, we believe it's exponential. Because as every one of us get the experience of sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ, you're also going to experience something maybe you've not experienced before. And that is how the Holy Spirit can work in you and use you and use those words to impact you and the people that you share Christ with. And we believe it will be exponential. Because if we can get everybody in our church in the next 12 months to share the gospel once, here's our belief. None of you will be satisfied with that. 
that as you experience that work of God in your heart, you're going to want to do it more. So yes, this year may not seem like a big thing, but we believe First, it's going to be exponential. And secondly, we believe over a five-year period, it is going to be monumental. We honestly believe that. And we'll talk with you more about that in a couple weeks about what we mean by that. But for today, here's my job. Um, over the next few weeks, I'm going to do more informing, but today I just want to inspire you, if that's at all possible, about why. Why would we do this? And why would we take four weeks to do this? And why would we have this in our, in our one-year goal? So I want to share with you just a story from Scripture about a guy named Peter. And I want to talk to you about how Peter goes from being a, a curious person about Jesus to a convinced, convicted person willing to die himself for the gospel. Now, we just spent two and a half years going through the gospel of Luke, and, um, and I don't know, there was, I was amazed at how many deep, rich passages there are there, but one that has always stuck with me is Luke 19.10. Um, words that just I always remember where it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, there's so much there, but I'll just really quickly say this. First of all, what it tells us is that Jesus was God, that he was in heaven where his will is done perfectly, where he is worshiped perfectly, where angels are all around and he's calling the shots and he left heaven and he came to earth amongst people who didn't worship him, amongst people who didn't love him, who, where his will wasn't done perfectly and he lived in a body like ours. Why did he do it? He came to seek people who weren't seeking him. And he came to die for people who didn't even care about him or realize they needed someone to do that for him. At about the age of 30, Jesus started his public ministry. And he had a cousin whose name was John. Uh, we call him John the Baptizer. And John was this radical guy who kind of, he lived out in the desert. So he didn't live in nice homes like most religious leaders. And uh, he just, he ate bugs. And, he, you know, he shopped at Goodwill. And he was kind of an outsider. And uh, he was preaching, uh, encouraging people to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Son of God, of the Messiah. And people were coming and they were getting baptized and they were, they were repenting of their sins and the religious leaders were coming out with their lawn chairs and just listening. They didn't know what to do with this guy. They didn't have a, didn't have a category for him. And, and John had some disciples and they would come and work with him. And one day we're told when Jesus is about 30, he starts his public ministry. He goes through the whole 40 days, the wilderness thing. And then he, he preaches. And, and one day he's kind of walking by where John is. And he's kind of stalking John and his disciples. He walks by and John, I don't know, I picture he's talking and baptizing and he sees Jesus up on the shore and he, he points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I, I don't know, I just picture people like, come and they look and, oh, hmm, who is that guy? And, and then Jesus just kind of winks and keeps walking. And the next day he comes back again, comes back again because he's a stalker, Jesus is. And he comes back and he's like walking along and he looks over and John's freaked out, oh, Hey, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now he had two, John had two disciples um, and they were kind of like, hmm. And they broke ranks from John that day and they, they went and met Jesus and, and followed him for the day. In John 1.40, it tells us, it says, now one of the two who heard John say all this and followed uh, Jesus was a guy named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He never gets under from being Simon Peter's brother, even when he was the first one to follow Jesus. But it says, he first found his brother Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. 
And he brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. Hey, from now on you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here, 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 Andrew, now watch how this works. I think this is what's going on. John knows that Jesus, who Jesus is. John says, There you go, there's the Messiah. Andrew says, Well, if John says it, then I believe it. And then he goes and gets his brother and says, John said it, and I believe it. And because I believe it, you should believe it. And now they go and, and, and Peter's with him. So he, he doesn't even have a well-formed doctrine of Jesus. And he's already telling people about Jesus Christ. He gets his brother. Now Peter is a fisherman, just as Andrew is. Uh, probably a small business owner. Uh, probably had a few uh, boats in their fleet. He has some partners as well. He's considered an uneducated man. We don't know. Scholars think maybe he was in his early to mid-30s at this point. Uh, he was probably the oldest of the disciples. He's impulsive. He's a guy who jumps first and, and then apologizes later. He's always the guy to, to blurt out things first. Uh, Peter, so Peter and Andrew, as I understand it, they spend the day with Jesus. They hang out with him. I don't know, maybe they had dinner with him. But then, and you don't always get this if you, if you don't read all the Gospels together. Uh, I, I think what happens is at the end of the day, they go home. Now, a lot of times we miss this. But I think they go home and um, they sleep in their own beds that night. And um, they go back to work the next day. And that's what they do. Now, in, in the meantime, uh, Jesus is, is out and he's ministering. He turns water into wine. He's, he's spreading the good news. And then, uh, I don't know, a few days or a week later, we get a second story in Matthew 4. And this is a different story. This takes place just a little bit later um, in Matthew 4.18. Now, while Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Now, Jesus has already met these guys before. And he's walking along the shore, and he sees them. Why does he see them? Because he's stalking them. That's why. And they're casting out a net into the sea because they were fishermen. That's what they do. And Jesus uh, looks at them, and he says, follow me, and I will make you, and this is new. We didn't get this in the last passage. I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, what's Jesus saying? I'm calling you to me, but it's not just, well, you can come to me, and then it's all about you. No, I'm calling you to me so that you can take the gospel to other people. Like right away, this is an expectation. And immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. So uh, Peter and Andrew leave their nets. Now again, you might not catch this in the text, but I believe they spend the day with him. Maybe they have dinner with him. I don't know. Maybe they pitch a tent and hang out overnight. But at some point in the next few days, they go back home. <laughs> There's a pattern here. They sleep in their beds, have dinner with their families, and they go back to work. Now, how do we know that? Because a few days or weeks later, we have another encounter. Now, Jesus is out teaching, and, and he's working miracles. And, and one day, he's walking along a lake, and a crowd's growing around him, and he's trying to teach, but there's too many people. And he's trying to figure out, so he comes across, and oh, lo and behold, there's a couple of boats. And who do the boats belong to? Oh, Peter. Why? Because he's stalking Peter. That's why. And so he sees Peter, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get in the boat, Peter. And could you push me out a little bit from land? If you know how water works a little bit, it's a great reflective surface. You pull out a little bit. People sit on the shore. You teach. When he's done teaching, he looks over at Peter and says, I feel like I should compensate you, you know, for letting me use your boat. So if you just cast your nets out over there, I think you'll find some fish. And Peter says, you know, Jesus, you're a great teacher, but you're no fisherman. Uh, we fished all night long, and we didn't catch anything. There are no fish to be had here today, but 
you know, because you said it, I'll do it. And he lets his nets over, and you probably know the story. They catch so many fish that the nets are breaking, so they call their partners, James and John, and they come, and they're casting out their nets, and there's so many fish that the boats are sinking. And at that point, it says, Simon Peter saw it, and he fell down at Jesus' knees. They're in the boat. And he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Or like, it's interesting to me, that's the thing that really becomes apparent to him. I'm a sinner, Jesus, and you're really not a sinner. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. There it is again. So it's not just going to be about you. It's going to be about other people. And when they had brought their boats back to land, they left everything and followed him. So a couple things here. Again, don't forget who's pursuing who. How did Andrew and, and Peter even connect with Jesus in the first place? Because again, I think Jesus was stalking them. I think he was after them because they were on his radar. He kept coming by. He keeps finding them. By the way, you should probably know that the same was true of you. You did not find Jesus. I know we use that sometime. I came along and I found Jesus. God's up in heaven going, that's pretty funny. You didn't find me. You weren't even looking for me. I found you. It was Jesus who found you. It was Jesus who loved you first. It was Jesus who came and died for you when you didn't even think you needed anyone to die for you. It was Jesus who pursued and pursued and pursued you. It's interesting to notice that in the second encounter, it says they left their nets. But in this encounter, it says they left everything. And this time they did. They left everything and they followed him. And in the days and weeks to come, Jesus chooses the 12 and Andrew and Peter are part of that group. And Peter begins to travel with Jesus and he, you know, he hears the teaching. I mean, can you imagine how cool that would be? Like, not listening to me tell you what Jesus said, but listening to Jesus I mean, that would be just crazy. And they're hearing him teach and they're seeing the miracles and Jesus' ministry is becoming very high profile. And one day, he kind of pulls the disciples into a huddle and they have this great conversation in Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So, you know, Jesus says, I I know I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter and Facebook and everyone's got an opinion about me, you know, so what, what are people saying? What are you hearing? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, which is weird. We don't have time for that. But he had just been beheaded. And people are like, ooh, he's like you're a zombie. You know, I don't know what the deal is. And you're, you're like John or you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah or one of the great prophets. And then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? See, that's always the big question, right? Because we live in a society full of people who have opinions about Jesus. And they like him and they don't like him or whatever. But what about you? Because really in the end, the only thing that really matters in, is in, in your life is what do you say about Jesus? And so we asked him this. And Simon Peter, in true fashion, jumps in. He's like, ah, I know this. I know this, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So a couple things. Clearly at this point, Peter now has faith in Jesus Christ. He believes him to be uh, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And Jesus points out, by the way, it wasn't your intellect that got you to this place. This is divine information that's come. But let me just say this. Peter's confession is good. It's a great thing. It's It's a really good step for Peter. But here's the thing. Peter made his confession in a very, very safe place. He's just in a small 
group of people. One of them is Jesus himself. And then 11 other guys who believe in Jesus. Very It would be like in this worship service if I said, hey, would anyone just want to stand up right now and just anyone have the courage and the guts to say, Yes, I believe in Jesus. Like, it wouldn't take a lot of guts and courage in this room to do that because you're in a safe place. And we'd all be like, yeah, good for you. But how about if I said, uh, but what about if you go to work uh, where everybody is antagonistic for Jesus and just would you be willing to do it there? Right? So it's easy to look and go, well, yeah, but this is a safe place. So Jesus begins telling his disciples just right after this. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to raise from the dead on the third day. And so Peter's just had this great confession of faith and immediately here's what happens next. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. <laughs> this is, that's a strong word. And he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, he says, you need to stop talking like that, Jesus. So I love it. Jesus is with this crowd. He's like, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. La, la, la. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 time out. We need to have a little powwow over here. He takes Jesus by the arm and goes, look, dude, like you, you're a great guy and all this stuff, but you gotta stop talking like this. This is, this is crazy. To which Jesus responds, and this is, by the way, if Jesus says this to you, this is never a good sign. He turns and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So it's fair to say that Jesus is not pleased with his response. He says, you are a hindrance to me. And here's the key, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on your own agenda, on the things of man. So you say, what, what, what happened here? How did, how did everything go sideways? Well, Peter basically, in the, in, in the last passage, was calling Jesus Lord, but now he's, he's acting like he's Lord. He's, he's now taking the lead. I don't know, do you ever do that with Jesus? Like, you know, you come to church and you sing Jesus is Lord, and then you go home, and instead of following Jesus, you decide you need to lead Jesus. You set an agenda for Jesus, right? You say, you pray, God, I need you to do this for me today. I need you to take this away from me today. I need you to fix that thing. I need you to, I need you to give me this or, or you know, take that away uh, or, or just keep me safe. But mostly, Jesus, I need to stop talking like that. Like I was reading the Bible today and you said something. And you should, don't, don't, don't be talking like that. That's exactly what Peter's doing. You need to stop talking like that, Jesus. Jesus calls him out. He says, get behind me, Satan. But here's the good news. Jesus doesn't kick Peter off the team. He keeps teaching and, and, and loving and leading, and he's very patient with him. And, and Peter keeps following Jesus in the days and weeks to come, and, and he's, he hears Jesus teaching. He, he, he sees Jesus give sight to the blind. He sees Jesus work miracles and confront the religious leaders and, and raise Lazarus from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. And eventually he sees everything Jesus said go down. They're in the upper room. There's the betrayal of Judas. There's the arrest in the garden, despite Peter pulling out the sword, you know, and going all ninja and Jesus having to fix that. There's the arrest, there's the mocking, there's the beating. There's Jesus being taken to the high priest's house where he's going to, where he's, he, he's being abused, where he's being mocked. And Peter's following at a distance. Peter wants to see what's going down. He's not standing next to Jesus. He's kind of a safe distance away. He's in a courtyard and he can see through a, 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 probably an open gate what's going on inside. What, he could probably actually see Jesus and what's happening, but he's a safe distance away. It's in the evening. He's at a courtyard. There's a fire and he's warming himself. And during that time, and you, you probably know the story, during that time, a, a servant girl comes by, a young girl who has no authority, no power. She's no threat to Peter whatsoever. And she says, hey, aren't you? 
you one of those Jesus followers? And, and, and Peter looks, right? So here's Peter, who in a closed room said, well, you're the son of the living God. And now there's a little girl standing in front of him. What does he say? I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then another guy comes up and says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And, and Peter says, I don't even know the man. I've never met him before. And then we pick up the story. It says, after a little while, the bystanders came by and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them. Your accent betrays you. We know you're not from around here. And then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, and he said, I do not know the man. Think about that. He says, I don't even, after several years in Jesus' inner circle, when he's given the opportunity in public to identify with Jesus, he just chokes. Have you ever done that? You're out in public, not in the safety of this place, and the Holy Spirit just opens up a great, big, four-lane highway for you to just share the gospel, and you just kind of go all Peter on everyone. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't go to Gateway. What are you talking about, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, that car looks like mine, but it's not mine, you know? Here's the good news. Peter's story still isn't over because Jesus loves him. So there's more to the story. Jesus is crucified. As he said, he was buried, resurrected on the third day, appears uh, over uh, the course of time to the disciples on several occasions, and I always wonder, like, during this time, I wonder how, how do you think Peter's feeling during all this? You know, like, like, I always wonder, he's in the upper room, and Jesus walks through the walls, and he's like, hey, guys, and I wonder if Peter's over in the corner going, oh, man, this is really awkward, because <laughs> the last time Jesus and I had a face-to-face where he could see me, I was telling people I didn't even know him. I wonder if Peter isn't just racked with guilt and with shame. I wonder if he's just anxious and like, I don't know if we're okay or not, you know. I mean, I'd love to get alone and talk with Jesus, but I don't know. I, he's kind of looking at me weird, and I'm just feeling uncomfortable. Well, this goes by, and, and, and a little time later, the disciples uh, decide to go fishing, because they're just waiting on Jesus. He's doing all sorts of stuff, and they decide to go back to fishing. So they go fishing, and they're out all night, and they don't catch any fish, and they're in their boats, and they're about to come in. It all sounds weirdly, vaguely familiar. And while they're getting ready to come in uh, to shore and clean their nets, uh, they see somebody on the shore. It's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. He's incognito. And he yells out like, hey, how's the fishing? And they yell back, oh, it's terrible. We didn't catch anything all night. And Jesus says, oh, you should put your nets out over there. Right? Try over there. They're probably all like, why does this feel familiar? I don't, you know, so they let down their nets and guess what happens? All this fish and the, and the nets are tearing and the boats are singing. And apparently about that time, John leans over to Peter and says, dude, do you know who that is? And Peter looks and John's like, it's Jesus. And John doesn't even, uh, you know, he's just, Peter's sitting there and Peter's like, I'm not waiting to row to shore. That's going to take too long. He jumps out of the boat. He swims to shore. Everyone else gets there. They have breakfast together. They're kind of hanging out with Jesus. And then Jesus finally, he says to, uh, he says to Peter, we, should, we, we need to talk. And I imagine Peter's probably pretty, pretty anxious at that point. And here's how the conversation goes down. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now there's a whole lot of stuff, but I just want to focus on the three questions. Do you love me 
more than these. Some think that these are the other disciples, which that, that's weird, uh, or it's his fishing boats or whatever. We don't really know. It's probably the people, but we love what Peter said. So Jesus looks, I, I love this. Like Jesus could ask him a hundred questions. Like, what were you thinking? Hey, what were you doing when you said, when you denied me? Uh, you know, after all that I did for you, right? Isn't that what we'd say? After everything I did for you, that's what you did? That's how you responded? Like, what were you thinking? What am I going to do with you? But Jesus just cuts right to the heart of the matter. Here's the heart of the matter. He just looks him in the eyes. All oh, that must have been so uncomfortable. He says, Peter, here's really the issue. Do you love me? I mean, that's just really it. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter's probably thinking, oh, it's so good to get that out of the way. It's so good to get that, that, that cleared up. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, and I imagine he says a little slower, wait a minute, do you love me? Now it's probably getting really uncomfortable. I picture Jesus leaning in. And Peter's like, wait a minute, you already asked me that question. Why are you asking me again? No, Peter, do you love me? Hmm. He says to him, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. And then I picture he leans a little bit closer. Peter's just like sweating now, you know. He's looking at Jesus like, oh man, he's not going to ask me a third time, is he? And Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Right? What's, this is it. This is the essential issue for every one of us. Do we love Jesus? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. I love how Peter's like, you're killing me here, Jesus. Right? Like, what's going on? Yes. Yes. He says, you know everything. You know that I love you. You have to love the symmetry here, don't you? Kind of the, the, the catharsis here. How many times did, did Peter deny knowing Jesus? And now there's kind of a process, doesn't it feel like, where Jesus is like, let's just let's, let's get a little healing here. Let's just kind of move forward. What's the, what's the core issue, Peter? Why did you deny knowing me? This is all about you loving me. Jesus loves Peter. He sought him, he restores him, and then he directs him. He says, so here's the deal. So you and I, we have a love relationship. You're good, but there's all these people out there who need someone to tell them and to shepherd them and to love them and to tend to them and to feed them. Peter, that's the point. See, as believers, folks, we belong to Jesus. As believers, our sin has been forgiven. As believers, we've been saved through the grace of God, not by works, not that anyone can boast. And our salvation is not rooted in our performance. It's based in Christ. We, if we belong to God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are good. But here's the crazy thing. Once we come to Christ and we are secure, how is it over time, and we'll look at this in the next few weeks, how is it that we just tend to become more and more self-absorbed? And this is what studies say Christians over time become more and more self-absorbed and they share the gospel, ironically enough, less and less 
the longer they walk with Christ. We are so prone to think that once we belong to Jesus, he's here to serve us and fulfill our needs and our goals and keep us safe from mean people in a cruel world and boring jobs and, you know, losing our hair and all that kind of stuff. And so Jesus is going to give his followers some very, very clear directives. He's just like, I want you to understand what you need to do, right? So let's do that. And we call it the Great Commission. And in reality, we should call it the Great Commissions. Because in fact, there are five of them in Scripture. One in each of the Gospels and one in the book of Acts. Now, the one that we usually think about when we talk about Great Commission is Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So I want you to go. I want you to go to people who don't know me, and I want you to make disciples. What does that mean? It's a process. I want you to baptize them. That means you share the gospel with them. They come to faith. You baptize them. It's this, it's this public identification with Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you teach them to observe. That's discipleship. All that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Mark 16 is the second one. He says to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. I want you to go again and tell people what God has done. In Luke 24, he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And notice what he says, you are witnesses of these things. So you've witnessed something. I want you to tell other people. And in John 20, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus gives the great commissions. He ascends to heaven. The disciples to gather together on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down. You know the story. Peter preaches his first sermon. 3,000 people get saved. They have an altar call. It's great. The church has started. And then a few weeks later, uh, Peter and John are going to the temple. And they're going up to pray. And as they're going up, there's a man who's at a gate, an entrance to the temple area, and he's crippled. He was, he was born crippled. He's always been crippled. And everyone knows him. They know who he is. Peter's walking up, and he sees the guy, and he says to him, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, you're healed. Rise up and walk. And the guy leaps up and he starts praising God and everybody's like, whoa, what's going on here? And everybody sees it. And everyone's talking about it. Peter looks around. He's got an audience. So he starts preaching again and he's preaching the gospel and he's giving it to the people and people are getting saved and the religious leaders hear about it. So they come running and they're hearing it and they're thinking, oh, we thought we got rid of this when we killed Jesus. And now this guy's preaching. So they arrest him. They throw him in prison overnight. They're like, maybe he'll cool down. And the next day they bring Peter and John before their council. Now, Remember, this is the group of guys who condemned Jesus to death. So these, this, there's an idle threats that they're making. Here's Peter and, and John standing before these guys, and they basically say, who gave you the power to heal? And he's like, you know, Jesus did. And then Peter starts preaching. And, and get this. Remember, just a short time before, he wouldn't even admit to a little girl that he knew Jesus. And now he's standing in front of the guys that condemned Jesus to death. And here's what he says. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter knows this is going to get him in a lot of trouble. And the religious leaders are stuck. They don't like what he's doing, but they can't deny the miracle. So they talk about it, and they order Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus, which is not an idle threat. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge, because we cannot, we will not stop speaking of what we have seen and what we have heard. And Peter has been transformed through this journey of his into a bold 
convinced witness. And I'm telling you, this is not a picture of simply what God wanted to do for one man. I believe this is a picture of what God wants to do in the lives of every single one of us in this room. So I want to just give you uh, a couple of, I'm going to give you four really quick, four practical principles. So what do we do with all this? And uh, the first is, is this. In Acts 1.8, this is kind of the, the fifth, if you will, the fifth um, great commission. When Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Four quick things. First of all is this. You need to remember your identity. Uh, now, back in Acts 1.8 when he says, uh, you will be my witnesses, that is not a command. That is simply a declaration. In the Greek, what it basically says is, he's just saying, this is who you are. It's not a job description, it's your identity. What he's saying is this, if you're a Christian, you're a witness. That's what you are. You have witnessed something. There was a time when you didn't know Jesus, and then you met him. You witnessed that. How did God seek you? How did God save you? What difference has he made in your life? You are a witness of all of those things. You are always a witness to other people, whether you are aware of it, whether you mean to be or not. Every word you say, every action, every reaction, every decision, every conversation on your part, you are being some kind of witness. The question is this, what kind of witness are you being? Are you telling people about the most important thing you have witnessed in your life? That's the first thing. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. The second is, don't forget the Holy Spirit. He says in Acts 1.8, we're going to get the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And one reason is, among others, is because he wants to empower you to share the gospel. He wants to equip you to be a witness. And so that's why sometimes in life you're in a conversation with an unbeliever and you start, it, the, the Holy Spirit starts poking you and, and prodding you and giving you things to say. Have you ever felt like that? And when you push back, basically, and don't do it, you're just muzzling the Holy Spirit. Think about that. You're muzzling, you're trying to silence the Holy Spirit. Here's what Scripture says. Don't do that. Just go with that. Just go with the, what the Spirit wants to do in your life. Here's the third thing, and I, I, I hesitate to bring this up because it feels like the real, the, the, the guilt part of the conversation, but sometimes it just comes down to a matter of obedience. To be a Christian means that Jesus is your Lord. He's calling the shots, and you're following him. And he's commanded us to share the gospel. He's commanded every one of us. Now, because I'm insecure, I want to be the good pastor here, and I don't want to make you feel guilty, so I'm going to have someone else be the bad pastor. I'm the good pastor, and I'm going to show you just a quick minute video from Pastor Francis Chan, and he can be the bad pastor about this obedience thing. Look, when, when, when my daughter comes to me, and I say, hey, go, go clean your room, she knows better. She, she's not going to come back a couple hours later and say, hey, Dad, I memorized what you said to me. He said, go clean your room. You know, what am I going to say? Oh, good job. That's what I wanted. No. And, and she's not going to come to me and say, Dad, I can say, go clean your room in Greek. Listen, that's not going to fly. And, and what if she says, you know what? My friends and I, we're going to gather together and every week we're going to have a study and we're going to figure out what it would look like if I cleaned my room. No, none of that's going to fly. Just go and clean it. She knows that. So why do we think that this type of thinking or this type of talk is going to work with Jesus? I mean, Jesus was as black and white as you get. He would look at people and he'd say, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? He says that in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I ask you to do? 
mean, why would you call someone your master and then not listen to him? And, and he says in Matthew 7, 21, he goes, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only the one who actually does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, yeah, so now that you're feeling guilty, we'll move on. Uh, last thing is conviction. So uh, I want to just uh, give you this. It came across a statement this week, and it makes a lot of sense. It says, people who are most likely to share the gospel are people who believe down to the core of their soul that Jesus is the answer to their greatest need. See, without conviction, the, the Great Commission is just a duty. It's just another thing that you have to do. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I wish I had the conviction of, of, of Peter. Uh, let me just tell you this. If you know Christ, you have a story, just like Peter had a story. You have a journey, just like Peter did. And sometimes the reason we lack conviction is because we never stop to look at our story, to ask, what was I saved from? How did God pursue me? How did he save me? What's the difference he's made in my life? Because if you know Christ, you all have a story. And in that story is where I think we begin to find the conviction that Jesus is really the only answer to our greatest need and to the greatest need of the people that we love who don't yet know him. And so I wanted to do something to close here. We gave you Peter's story, and uh, I'm gonna have somebody from our congregation come up and close us by sharing with you uh, his story. And uh, his name is Ken Caldwell, and Ken and his wife have been attending Gateway uh, for about a year now, and, and you may have met them before. And so I've asked Ken to just come up. He has a great story. So I've actually um, listened to him uh, share his story in like an hour-long version uh, online. Uh, he and I uh, met a while back over tacos, and I think it took three hours, and he shared his story. I asked him not to take three hours or an hour. I've asked him to take a few minutes but to talk a little bit about his story and how he has come to this place of full conviction in Christ. Great. Ken? Thank you, Pastor. And, uh, and thank you. Uh, my, as Pastor said, my wife and I joined here about, uh, we've been visiting about nine, nine, for about a year and, and uh, have been members for about nine months. And it's been a real blessing to be a part of your family here at Gateway. And we've really got to enjoy getting to know Pastor Bob as well. Um, so my, as, as Pastor Bob said, my testimony, it's actually, it's kind of two testimonies, if you will, in one. Um, and the first one is really for the first, uh, first 29 years of my life. And uh, that was testimony one. And probably the best way to describe that testimony or best way to illustrate it is, uh, if it, of all things, probably a bicycle helmet. So uh, a, a brand new bicycle helmet, a shiny red bicycle helmet. That probably best describes what my, uh, what my uh, testimony was the first 29 years of my life up until 1991. And uh, for really the second testimony that I'll share with you of my life, um, it's also probably best illustrated with a bicycle helmet, only, um, only this bicycle helmet's a, a little bit different. Um, this one is uh, not, not, uh, not brand new, not, uh, in fact, it's, I'd say, well-worn. Um, this bicycle helmet is not, you know, shiny and without a single blemish on it right out of the box. This bicycle helmet is is scratched, dented, uh, shattered in seven pieces. And finally, th th this helmet uh, uh, is nice and bright and shiny and red. And uh, the really, the only thing red about this helmet is, is, is probably the blood that, that's on it. And so very different testimonies, very, very different testimonies. And so 
for me, uh, I'll start with kind of this one, and that is my testimony uh, from my first 29 years. I was born and raised in a town, in, a small town in Kansas, and very blessed to be part of a Christian family, raised in a Christian family. And so my parents shared with me at a very early age uh, the gospel. Uh, they shared with me that I, that I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner and that I couldn't come to God on my own, to a holy God. Uh, but thankfully, God loved me. God loves all of us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come down to, from heaven to the earth, to walk on this earth, and to live the life, the perfect life that I couldn't live. Um, even, even though he didn't deserve to die, he chose to die. He chose to be crucified and die on the cross in my place, uh, in place of me, uh, and, and do the sacrifice that I couldn't. And because he rose again from the dead, and I believe that, I know that my sins are forgiven because, only because of what Jesus Christ did. And I knew that, and I, and I, was, I knew that as a, uh, as a child in, in grade school and uh, in junior high and high school. And what I'd love to be able to tell you is, is that once I understood that and knew that, I'd love to tell you that I then just went out and couldn't wait to share that good news with all of my friends and all of my family and bring others to Christ. I wish I could tell you that, but but that wouldn't be the truth. Um, the fact is, I, I just really kind of kept that to myself. That, that was kind of my testimony. And uh, well, I went to church on Sundays, and you know, I said my Lord's Prayer every night before I went to bed. Uh, but that was probably about the extent of my Christian life. Um, I, uh, with that, it allowed me then to kind of focus on, I was very goal-oriented, and so as I went through college and graduate school and, and then went on to the work world, I became very goal-oriented, and there's kind of two main primary goals that I pretty much put all my focus in life in. Goal number one was my career. I worked at a company called PepsiCo, and for those of you who know PepsiCo, you may know the brands. PepsiCo has all of Pepsi, Pepsi the drink. It has all of Frito-Lay. It has all of Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Taco Bell. So I worked with that company. It was a company I'd always dreamed of working for, and I got a chance to work there. So I was trying to work my way up the career ladder as fast as I could, working 50, 60 hours a week. That was goal number one. And goal number two was I had gotten into marathons and triathlons, and my real big goal was I wanted to qualify for the U.S. triathlon national championships. That was, that was what I was trying to get ready for. Triathlon is where you swim, an ocean or lake or, or a river, and then you get out of the water, you jump on a bike, you bike for a distance, and then you go run. And so I loved that sport. So my life pretty much uh, up in my 20s was pretty focused on getting up every morning really early, 5 in the morning, 5.15, jumping on my bike, doing a bike, uh, bike training ride uh, out in the outskirts of Wichita, Kansas, where I lived with a training partner. And uh, we would bike between 25 and 30, 35 miles each morning uh, before work. Then I'd go to work, and I'd work until lunch, and eight until noon. And then over my lunch hour, I had a, a really great runner that, uh, there that I used to go running with, and we, a running partner. We would run, do training runs that would go anywhere from four to 12 miles, depending on the day. I'd work all afternoon and evening, past dinner, and then after dinner, some nights, I would, uh, three, four nights a week, I would join the master swim team, and we would do a master swim team workout and do four or 5,000 meters in the, in the evening. And that was just kind of a regular rhythm throughout the week. And you get better and better. And by the summer of, summer of 1991, um, I was right on track. I was about to be made director at PepsiCo and move up the career ladder. And I, was just, I just found out I qualified for the U.S. Triathlon Championships. And so I was training for those championships in Wichita. And I woke up on August 8th, 1991, and just like a normal morning, and it was about 5.15 in the morning when I woke up, 
threw on my bike gear, my bike helmet, jet, grabbed my bike, headed out. And for any of those you who are bikers, you know that uh, you try to head out into the wind, straight into the wind to start your ride so that when, the, when you get tired, the wind will carry you back home. It's a very windy place in Wichita, comes out of the southwest almost all the time. So I headed out and this got to this road called Greenwich Road. And it's a road I'd ridden down a hundred times before. And uh, it was a great morning, great hot you know, uh, morning with the sun rising about 6, 6, 15 in the morning and headed out to go to do about a 32 mile ride. And I was heading down this road just getting into a nice rhythm and uh, riding about 20, 25 miles per hour. And you could just feel, you could hear, you know, you hear the gears clicking because it's so quiet out there. I love that road because there's no cars on it hardly. It's a two-lane highway. About every once every minute or two, you'd see one car come by and then maybe another one. So it was a great ride. I was over on the right-hand side, over on the shoulder, riding away. And uh, this morning was just like every other, except as I was riding down the, the uh, road and looking down, looking, watching the sunrise, I, uh, I noticed a car coming in the opposite lane coming towards me and uh, didn't think much of it because, you know, cars came by every so often and I expected to go right on by like other cars had. O only this one was different because um, as it approached at 50, 55 miles per hour and got even with me, instead of going on by in the opposite lane, it just, it just suddenly swerved and just jerked across the center line right at me. And uh, so I saw the car and I immediately grabbed the handles of the bike to yank my bike into the ditch to get out of the way of it. But, um, but there was no time. The, the car was going 50, 55 miles per hour this way and I was going 25 miles an hour this way. And uh, there was just no time to react. And so I saw the bumper as it came in and the grill as it came in and as it hit my leg. And the first thing I felt was just, and, and sensed was this, was this, uh, just heard these braking sounds, just these really, really loud braking sounds. And then it threw my body uh, over to my right into the windshield, and I hit the windshield with this side of my face and side of my body. And again, just, uh, just these braking sounds, just glass braking and just loud, loud braking sounds. And then the suction of the car going that fast pulled me alongside the driver's side of the car, and I went down along the side of the car and then got, got trapped under in the back wheels of the car, so between the, uh, the axle and the, the road. And so I was underneath the car and just these just dragging sounds and just the loud noises under a car. It seemed like it lasted forever. I know it probably was only a second or two. And drug, and then all of a sudden the tire went up and over my right shoulder and just spit me out underneath the car onto the road. And then it just got quiet. It just got... Just, just got really, really quiet. And uh, I, just, I can just remember opening my eyes, and when I opened them, I, I, I could tell I was on my back, and I was just looking, you know, looking straight up and watching this just beautiful, beautiful Kansas sunrise. And uh, fortunately, there had been a, uh, a new uh, emergency medical service uh, uh, satellite office that was, had been built, satellite station that had been built only about a half mile from where the accident took place in rural Wichita, which is just a year prior. So they were able to get to me very quickly, uh, and they got to me and tried to do, did the work to try to stabilize me and then rushed me to the uh, emergency room uh, where a team of six different doctors worked on me for nine hours and uh, trying to stabilize me and, and see what they could do. And uh, so nine hours later, I woke up in uh, the critical care unit, and when I woke up, uh, I was told that 
a woman had been driving to work in the morning in her Oldsmobile Cutlass, and she had uh, just happened to fall asleep uh, on her way to work just as she was coming uh, even with me. So she was going about 50, 55 miles an hour, fell asleep, and struck me head on, and I was going 20, 25 miles an hour, so we struck at about a 75 mile per hour uh, impact. And, uh, uh, and uh, I learned also that uh, I had, uh, the, the impact had shattered my right arm in four places, and uh, two of those fractures were compound fractures and open fractures. And uh, the nerve damage had allowed, had, that, well, I had no use of my right arm uh, at all. And my pelvis was fractured in three places. And my right leg, my upper right leg was compound fractured once. And the worst was my left leg below the knee, which was fractured four times between the knee and the ankle. And two of those were compound open fractures. And uh, so I learned all that. And, uh, but what I really remember is that in that opening couple of hours and days, just my family started flooding in and friends started flooding in, doctors and nurses and everybody that came in my room and the, almost the, the same thing you'd hear it over and over again. People would walk in, they couldn't help themselves. The first thing they would say is, wow, I, I can't believe you survived that accident. I heard what happened, I can't believe you're alive. Wow, it's a blessing you're alive. It's a miracle you're alive. And uh, my the family and friends of mine that were Christians started to say, you know, it's, it can't even be explained. I mean, how does a 4,600-pound car hit a 152-pound bicyclist head-on and the bicyclist lives? It, it's got to be from God. God saved you. And, uh, and that's what I, I heard that so many times. I was like, that's right. That, 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 that's the only sense I can make of it. God, God saved me. How else could I explain living through that? He saved me. And I kind of just neatly put that into my clean and simple testimony, and that's just how I thought about it. And uh, I'm a very future-oriented, goal-oriented person, so my nature was just to kind of put that aside immediately and say, okay, now I've got to set goals about how I'm going to get healed. I've got to go work with these doctors and get healed. I just kind of separated it that way I, at the time, and that, maybe it doesn't make much sense, but that's just the way I, that's what I did. And, um, but I didn't know a lot. Uh, I didn't know, number one, that I wasn't through even close to the worst part yet because as those of you in the medical community may know, I didn't know, is people have gone through severe trauma, the opening accident's not the worst part. The worst part's the days and hours that follow because your body starts to wear down. All that trauma starts to take, your body tries to absorb that trauma and mine was trying, but each day my vital conditions actually got worse. My, my, my vitals got worse and worse and worse as each day went on. Pain got worse not able to feed myself, not able to do anything. And by August 15th, seven days later, seven days later, uh, it was pretty bad. It was just a really bad day. I noticed that doctors are coming in my room all the time. Nurses are coming in, different doctors, different nurses, 24 hours a day. They're coming in the room, they're testing, their voices are getting more anxious. There's, there's more and more talking in and outside of the room. And uh, I could just tell something wasn't good. And so I talked to the nurse, this critical care nurse I got to know. She had got, they, they moved her from outside to stationed right inside my room next to my bed. And so we were talking a lot. And uh, she said, uh, she said uh, I asked a lot of questions. And she said, hey, I want you to know you, you do have some significant risks. And amongst the risks, what I heard was I had risks, high risk of blood clotting, high risk of stroke, or high risk of uh, pulmonary embolisms. 
things that could, that could end my life. And uh, so that night, as the people started to stream out of my, back out of my room, and I was left there, just the nurse and myself, and it got quiet. The room just got really, really quiet. And I couldn't do anything for myself, but I could pray. And, uh, and so I started to pray. And I, I started on the, pretty much the only prayer I'd ever prayed, which is the Lord's Prayer. And I said that so many thousands of times before bed, I just kind of, you know, could rip it off in a minute. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And I got to thy kingdom come, and I just stopped. And I just stopped. And thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. What is your will, Lord? And I, I stopped just ripping it off, and I started just slowing down and just talking with God. Thy will be done. What, what is your will, Lord? What? Why did you save me? Why am I here? And the only thing I can, only thing, way I can explain it is, is that it just became very, very clear. It's like I was hearing God for the first time. And while before it always been this kind of knowing the right things to say, all of a sudden it was in my heart, thy, thy will be done. What is your will, Lord? And all of a sudden I knew, I knew Jesus loved me. Growing up, I'd always said those words, I'd sang the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I, I had it up here, but I didn't know that Jesus loved me and Jesus was with me. And that, that minute in that hospital room, I knew he loves me. He loves me. And there was just an incredible peace that came over me. I can't even explain it. There's a line in the Bible, one of my favorite Bible verses, where it talks about a peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that transcends all understanding. I love that verse because that's the only way, I, that's the best words I can use to describe it. It wasn't like a peace that people say peace and peace. It wasn't man's peace. It was God's it was peace that can only come from Jesus. A peace that can only come when you know that your greatest, greatest need. And my, I, in a room this big, I'm sure that there's a number of you in this room that have faced a life and death situation where you thought you might, you might, be die, you might die. And I, don't, I can't speak for you at all I can just speak for me that when I was in that moment, when I knew that, you know, we all know we're going to die someday, right? But when you know this could be the time, it's different, and it's different. And I remember at that time saying, well, if I go now, I know Jesus. I know you have me. I know I'll be with you in heaven. And that's a peace that I, I can't imagine living, living without. And uh, when you know that Jesus is the answer to your absolute greatest need. And as I prayed that and got this unbelievable sense of peace, in a, in a room where there was no peace that week, there was people coming and going and crying and doctors nervous and talking with anxiety. All of a sudden, there was peace, real peace. And then all of a sudden, as I, I looked and the nurse came back in the room, and I looked, I said, well, that's my morning nurse. What's she doing here? And it was, it was 7 a.m. And I realized that I'd been praying or talking with God all night from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. And I, it seemed like just a few minutes. It, it was, I'll, I'll never, and, and my prayer life changed that moment and it's never been the same since. And so over the moments, the hours, the days that followed, over the next two weeks, uh, through answers to prayer and God's, God's grace, God's power, I, I, was, uh, I continued to heal and uh, was allowed to be released from the intensive care, moved into just the regular hospital where I spent another two months and then an inpatient therapy where I spent another two months. And it just, day by day, hour by hour, God answered prayer. 
And uh, there were doctors that said, you're going to lose that leg. For three months, they thought I would lose this leg. And then in November, by the grace of God, I learned I was keeping that leg. And there was uh, a year, 14 months went by where a different doctor said, there's just, you're not gonna get used to that right arm. So I just, I kind of just helped, just kind of drug this right arm around with me. Um, but 14 months after the accident, I started to get some trembles in it, tremors in it and some movement. And then over the period of the next year, learned to learn to use it again. And only by the grace of God do I have a, an arm that, that works. And learn to walk again, learn to run again. And while that was one of the big three gifts God gave me coming out of this accident, that was one of them. A second one was quiet, quiet time. Some real, I, I can't emphasize that enough. There were so many hours and days where I just laid in that hospital bed and just got a chance to really just talk with God. There was a, about a two-year time frame where I wasn't really working, where I was just going between surgeries, going between therapy sessions, going between meals, and just had time to just really see God working. And I just, I can't even explain to you what, he's always been working, right? He's working in all of our lives. He's working in all of your lives. It's just the difference between seeing his work and acknowledging it and not. And I still get mad at myself getting caught up and, you know, emailing my friends and texting this and writing this and going to work and I'll forget sometimes hour to hour, day to day how God is working. And I try not to. I try to remember that quiet time he gave me to see how he worked in my life. And the third and final gift that he gave me was, was people. Uh, we call it oikos here, but people, friends, family around me who love me and who I couldn't have done it without. They brought me food when I needed food. They brought me to physical therapy sessions, to doctor sessions, to surgeries, et cetera, and were there every step of the way. And I couldn't do anything back for them. And it just frustrated me like crazy. I couldn't do anything for them. But what they could do, what they did that for me, what I discovered and what the Holy Spirit put on my heart months after this, I, they, they were doing all these things for me, was, wow, there's so many of my friends and family that I love like crazy that do all these things for me. And there's a lot of them that don't know God, that don't, don't, don't know Jesus Christ, that know they have a big need, but they don't know that their greatest need is the peace that can only come from Jesus Christ. And I won't tell you it happened overnight. It's not like I just, bam, zap, woke up after my accident and said, I'm gonna start sharing Christ with everybody. It's not how it worked for me. But I will tell you over the period of the weeks and months as I saw how they were loving me and felt a real need to show love back to them, show real meaningful love back to them, I learned that, wow, this is a story God gave me and what God made clear to me was, he didn't just save me from something. God saved me for something. He saved me for share, being a fisher of men, sharing that love of Christ with all those that I love around me. And I've tried my best to do that as I've gone from there. And the only thing I'd say is everybody in here, you all have incredible stories too that only you know. And there's, they're God stories, right? There's, they're a story of how he saved you from something. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And he's also, more importantly, saved you for something. And uh, with that, I just thank you for the opportunity to be, up, be with you today. And thank you for the opportunity to be part of this family. Thanks, Pastor. Thanks, Pastor.